and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. This week, we are celebrating the 20th anniversary of The Talented Mr. Ripley, Anthony Minghella's adaptation of Patricia Highsmith's classic novel, starring Matt Damon as con artist Tom Ripley, along with Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Kate Blanchett. Set in Italy in the 1950s, the film follows Tom through a series of manipulative relationships, most notably with Law's rich dilettante Dickie Greenleaf. Widely praised at the time of its release, the film has only grown in stature since, so we are excited to be discussing it today. I had not seen this film since high school. I think this was only my second viewing, and you had never seen it. So this seems Oh god, I was like, I was just in paroxysms. I was loving it. I had seen... I would say five to ten minutes as a child and then had like at someone's house and then an adult came into the room and switched off the TV. And I remember those five to two, ten minutes. So clearly it made an impression on me even when I was like ten or whatever. But this film is A, really great film, as is fairly obvious, and B, kind of slightly not what I was expecting because it is... Like, obviously, there was like a grand history of kind of media about charming con artists. And regardless of whether they're the hero or the villain, you do generally have them sort of in the position of power and then kind of crumbling, you know? And this film is the origin story of Ripley and is, you know, the first book in the series. And it's really fascinating to see the way they set up this character with the kind of correct character traits and background to become this really effective con artist very quickly. But it's sort of not necessarily intentional at first. He sort of falls into that life. And then because he is, you know, a psychopath or whatever, he is he is just like, I'm okay with murdering people. <laughs> and there was considerably more murder than I was expecting. Well, I had fully forgotten everything that happens after a critical event around halfway through the film and was like, oh, well... There's a lot more movies than I recalled. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's just a tremendously entertaining movie, but also really good. Like, I think this is basically a perfect film. I don't think I'd really change anything about it. I mean, you can talk and we will about lots of various sort of subtextual things and the themes, but in terms of its construction and all the performances and the production values, it's just so delicious just the performances are unreal and i think that gwyneth paltrow's character is perhaps somewhat underwritten compared to the two two main guys but her performance is so good that it doesn't matter and it's fine right it's really a perfect storm of talent going on with everybody you have like every single actor in this at their peak yeah at their peak and they're all babies. Unbelievably <laughs> famous people, just across the board. And they're all so good. They're all earlier in their careers, so you get this exciting sense of all these people sort of coming into their own. Um, it's just a really, really thrilling movie to watch on a number of levels, I think. And it's incredibly interesting in a slightly less thrilling way, perhaps, in terms of the history of Hollywood at this time. Which we'll get into first, I think, before getting into some of the details of the actual film. So this was directed by Anthony Minghella, who also directed The English Patient, which I feel like people don't watch so much anymore, especially probably younger people who may be listening to this. But 
it's really good. I've seen it. It's a great film. It's very long, but um, it won Best Picture early in the 90s and was produced by Miramax and Harvey Weinstein, which this film was also. And it was a big... And he was making these films when he was quite young. Yes. So he was, I mean, he, he made this film when he was like 40. He died young. Yes. Um, and he was, so he was making some really impressive, accomplished dramas that were getting Oscar nominations as a comparatively young man at the start of his career. Yes. And Anthony Minghella, so he died when he was, I think, 54. He had um, cancer. But he also just was not hugely prolific. So he left behind a pretty limited filmography. And they're all these kind of sleek costume dramas. They might not all be costume dramas, but they're all that kind of um, mainstream but like good drama movie, right? So something like Cold Mountain, which I don't think anyone thinks is like a great film, but it was something that got nominated for Oscars and had famous people in it, including Jude Law, who's also in this movie. And I think for a long time, he was not really taken that seriously because he did these kind of glossy, costume-y sort of non-bro-y movies and that his reputation has kind of improved over time as people have considered this film in particular and also The English Patient to a degree in a more positive light, but he's, so he's directing, he also wrote this film and then Harvey Weinstein produced it on Paramount as well. Um, funded the movie. And he was obviously the sort of central figure in independent film in the nineties. Although again, this is sort of a borderline case because it was also funded by Paramount, but he's the person who's making all of these sort of artsy but slightly commercial movies that are winning Oscars in the 90s and has emerged as this huge power broker and is casting people like Gwyneth Paltrow, who appears in this movie and has been in the news a lot regarding Weinstein allegations in a lot of his movies, and also produced the first few movies that Matt Damon, who plays the lead in this movie, was in in a major way. He produced Good Will Hunting, he produced this, and then um, a couple other films after, or at least one. And so you have this sort of nexus of people and power around Weinstein that's all happening in this movie that, in retrospect, is pretty sickening to think about because we obviously know now that he was harassing Gwyneth Paltrow and obviously many other people. And Matt Damon has said that he had heard from Ben Affleck, who dated Gwyneth Paltrow, about sort of some of the stuff that was happening to Paltrow and then said he didn't know a lot of other details. Obviously, it's impossible to know. But there's sort of this roiling underbelly of this whole situation simultaneously yeah i don't have i don't have a high opinion of matt damon or ben affleck as individual people (laughs) as human souls and spirits no well there's a lot going on with matt damon and his career it's really interesting at this point but we'll get to that in a second i i don't particularly which i find particularly fascinating because i saw his new car movie i think about a week before i watched this i did too which is really perfectly illustrative of his career trajectory yeah I liked the car movie, but I agree with you about the career trajectory situation. So all the Miramax stuff is happening. It's really grim. But simultaneously, this movie is really great. And Miramax made a lot of shit in the 90s and after, but also produced a lot of really good movies, which obviously doesn't like validate any of his behavior. But this is the sort of gross paradox of this situation, right? Is that I was watching this and I actually hadn't recalled that it was a Miramax movie until after the fact. And I was like, man, they don't make movies like this anymore. Like this is a sleek, glamorous movie for adults. It's so much fun. And like, yeah, that's because Harvey Weinstein was the person 
who was making those movies, right? And also making dozens of really bad movies that were trying to be this. Yes, but I think, as, as well. I said but to yes. you before we started recording, like every single movie studio makes bad films and good yes. films. So it's just sort of this paradox, right? Of like, hmm, yep. I mean, I definitely think that it's a lot easier. It's obviously a lot easier for people to kind of talk about all the movies that the Weinsteins fucked up like the Harvey Scissorhands situation, because there are plenty of really public stories, especially more recently, I've forgotten the name, but the, the Guillermo del Toro bug movie and like Snowpiercer is a really recent one. And there are various films that just like, there's horror stories of both of the Weinstein brothers fucking up behind the scenes. But they did also produce this kind of amazing movie. And I don't really know how much creative input they had behind the scenes, but it's kind of like at the moment, the number of people who are just kind of, even if you haven't seen like Marriage Story, the number of people who are like, well, this movie's garbage or Scarlett Johansson must be garbage from what I've seen of the trailer because I don't like Scarlett Johansson. And it's like the key problem of all of these public figures is that most of them are actually quite talented in some way while also being shit. So like the Scarlett Johansson example, obviously very different to Harvey Weinstein, but like she is certainly someone who I don't like her opinions and she does a lot of bad and racist films, but in certain movies she can be a brilliant actress and give a really strong performance and you can't just kind of say this person's artistic output is no bad because they're problematic yeah it's really tricky society's complicated yeah <laughs> and the Weinstein thing obviously the fact that he wasn't directly directing these movies makes it so that you can actually watch them like if he had you know, written yeah. and directed this, we wouldn't be talking about it um, yeah it's not like a Woody Allen situation right. but it is still complicated and the Matt Damon thing is so fascinating to me because I watched this and I had seen it before obviously but a long time ago and he is tremendous in this movie he is his so acting specifically I was sitting there like his teeth are acting literally his teeth are giving a good performance oh god his body language also this is like the only movie I recall seeing where Matt Damon's short <laughs> because there's certain actors where like their height fluctuates in their career you know where like at what point in your career are filmmakers allowed to acknowledge that you're short and Matt Damon has claimed to be five foot eleven and I think we can all agree having seen this film that he's not no no indeed so I just find him such an interesting movie star in terms of his whole career situation I'm from Boston, and so I've seen Go Bull Hunting like a thousand times, although not for a while. I totally love that movie. I think it's great. And for a long time, when I was a teenager in sort of early 20s, I was very, very fond of him, and even Ben Affleck to a lesser degree. Like, if you grew up in Boston at that time, like, everyone loved them. It was just a universal, like, I cannot describe it if you weren't there. Like, they could walk down the street. I mean, I didn't personally experience this, but everyone had heard these stories. Like, people would just shout at them. I mean, it was this massive phenomenon. And Matt Damon really cultivated a reputation as a, in a very positive way for a long time. And he sort of... Ben Affleck is the, the douchey yeah. dumbass who makes mistakes and says really stupid bullshit in interviews. And then Matt Damon in recent years has started saying stupid shit in interviews because he's trying to like comment on political topics where he has bad opinions and doesn't understand how sexism or racism work. But for like a really long period, he was the nice one. And he was sort of the, you know, he would have sort of 
middle of the road mild social activism and was married to the same like non-famous lady for like decades yes and generally also did kind of more cerebral films even though obviously there was like the born franchise but the interesting thing about him is that he actually wasn't making more cerebral films they were just slightly better than ben affleck's pure yeah, garbage his, right his image his image was doing so much work right and he actually i mean i actually think they both are pretty smart but like matt damon went to harvard and is actually an intelligent person. Like, not that everyone who goes to Harvard is smart, but like he didn't get in. I think on like you know, it's like his entire family. For I mean, they're both Oscar-winning screenwriters. Yes, although how much of that screenplay they actually wrote remains a mystery. But um, what's interesting about the beginning of his career and kind of just tragic, I think, is so Google Hunting happens. That's Weinstein. Then he does. There, are, there are a couple sort of other films sprinkled out through here where he's playing smaller roles, but. This is his second big thing, I think. He was in Saving Private Ryan, but he's in that for like five minutes. And this is a great movie. This is his best performance for sure. It is, yeah. Like, I mean, no I've question. obviously seen like an inevitable number of Matt Damon movies, and this is the only movie I've seen with him in where I'm like, he's a great actor. Yeah. <laughs> and then he did this film, All the Pretty Horses, which was directed by Billy Bob Thornton, also produced by Weinstein. And this is like the subject of so much legend because where I don't know how much influence Weinstein had on the talent of Mr. Ripley, but it obviously turned out great. And Mangala had already won best picture for the English patient. So I would assume he pretty much was allowed to do what he wanted. The story of all the pretty horses, which I have not seen, but Billy Bob Thornton turned in like a three hour cut, which he still has in his home and will like show to people occasionally. So I have heard and Weinstein fully just tore it up and butchered it. And I have no idea whether the original movie actually was good because I haven't seen it, obviously, but it's supposed to have been really brilliant. And then the movie that wound up getting made or getting released is not that. And Damon has said for years in interviews that this basically just like disillusioned him forever with Hollywood and it seems like it was really just a horrible experience for everybody involved and he goes from that to then almost immediately doing the Oceans movies and Bourne and then it's like he never looks back and it's just these big franchise movies plus some Steven Soderbergh movies. And he's really prolific. Yeah. But they are all it's sort of he's entered the Tom Cruise zone. Yes. That is a good way of putting it. But I was just thinking, like, so your formative experience in Hollywood is Weinstein, 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 and he completely fucks with you. And obviously this is not remotely the same as, like, being a young woman and being abused by him in that way. But he was horrible to everybody. And that would would imagine just be so horrible. And, of course, the reaction from some people, as it was in this case, is just going to be like, nope. I'm out of here. Let's make some action movies for 20 years. Like, sounds good. It just struck me as such a sort of indicative thing that, I mean, like, and I also just think he seems like an asshole. Like, I'm not sitting here, like, weeping for Matt Damon. But it just felt like such a sort of grim narrative when I looked at it as a whole, which I hadn't really thought about before. I was like, oh, yeah, there you go. That's definitely something was going on. He did like a reverse butterfly chrysalis situation where his early roles were all about sort of emotional vulnerability 
And quite frankly, his his brand was kind of twinky. Like mm-hmm. he he had like a twink brand, and th- you know he was doing these very sensitive roles. In fact, that was literally kind of his role in Ocean's Eleven, but like in a more sort of cheery, dumb, upbeat way. And even in Jason Bourne, like the first Bourne Identity film, he's really young and vulnerable, and that's kind of the premise. And then the switch flips after that movie comes out because that's like a huge, unexpected, massive action success. And from then on, obviously he still has emotions in his movies because he's an actor and he's playing characters, but it's like completely within the bounds of like really mainstream, straightforward, just straight man, middle-aged films. And the one exception to that is the Steven Soderbergh Liberace movie, which amazingly exists, starring him and Michael Douglas, which I mean... Okay, it's actually a really good movie, but I mean, I've not seen it. I've heard it's great, but I also feel like Steven Soderbergh just does stuff. Yes, like he just does stuff and makes people do unusual things. Right, and so Matt Damon has basically just done big studio movies and Steven Soderbergh movies for the past twenty years. Like I was looking at his IMDb, and I was shocked by the extent to which this is true. I genuinely do not think there is an exception to that. Maybe one that but I'm going to go ahead and assume it's because Mr. Soderbergh is chill. He is chill. Yeah. Everybody loves him. But, like, in Behind the Candelabra, the Liberace movie, he plays the, like, basically, like, young twinky boyfriend to Liberace, who's in this sort of, like, horrible, abusive relationship. I only saw it once, and it was years ago, so I don't remember the details, but he's great in it. So good. And I remember, like, people talking yeah. during awards season, like, everyone talking about how fun he was and how fun the movie is. And, and I mean, depressing and as really well. really depressing. <laughs> and it was, like, this one little glimpse of, like, oh, yeah, he's an actor. And <laughs> no more. Um, and I mean, there's still time for him to have a have a midlife crisis. The reconnaissance is waiting. <laughs> I mean, I did really love him as like a teenager. So part of some of this is just depressing to me. But it's more the the symbol of the whole the process. thing, right? Yeah, yeah, watching this happen to people, and you watch this movie, and he is so incredible that it's just like oh god and we can shift into the movie itself now but um yes let's talk about the film yeah i just find the whole history of this movie so interesting which i why i think it was worth talking about it a bit but um he was so skinny when he was younger and he lost a lot of weight for this movie specifically that his face genuinely looks like a different person's face yeah he really I I often think that like yeah. when you see all even when you see like the firstborn identity like his face shape has changed a great deal with age yeah which just happens to people obviously which but just it, happens but I think like he is the he is an example of like a public figure where there has been like a really he looks really different yeah which kind of adds to that sense of like there's two Matt exactly Damons. <laughs> it's interesting but um again the setup of the movie basically is that he kind of encounters Jude Law who plays again Dickie Greenleaf incredible name and passes himself off almost accidentally as a friend of Dickie's from Princeton. Dickie is off in Italy fucking around and his dad wants him to come back and he pays Tom, Matt Damon, $1,000, which at the time is a great deal of money, to go retrieve him from Italy. Yeah. So like basically Tom Ripley is, yeah, he's masquerading as a different social class. He does this sort of basically just for a lark because he's you know he wears someone's what is it like harvard or princeton jacket to like get a piano playing gig at a party and that kind of sets off this series of events that leads to him pretending to be a classmate of dickie greenleaf's and that's kind of what i was saying at the beginning of the episode like it's just really interesting to see this story that is very explicitly about this really 
quite menacing con artist figure who becomes just, I mean, basically just quite evil by the end of the film, but is also really sensitive and has this really interesting kind of economic background. And it's just like, Patricia Highsmith knew what was up. <laughs> like, she she knew what was up. And also, she wrote this film when she was like, she wrote this book when she was like, our age. Yeah. It was published when she was 33. Well. Disgusting. Back in the day, people did more things when they were younger. So that's kind of yeah. how it worked. And also, they didn't have Twitter to dis- distract exactly. them. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like he, but he, you know, we see him, obviously, he's like going into this intentionally trying to like do a sort of undercover mission so he's learning about jazz so he can become Tom Ripley's friend and he is of course pretending to be this imaginary classmate it's kind of the same way in which like films about abusive relationships kind of illustrate the way that there's like really specific tropes and patterns of behavior that you see across all sorts of abusive relationships and it's not like anyone goes to a seminar and learns them but this kind of explores the idea of a con artist in the same way because it's not like Tom Ripley has read a book that's like how to con people but kind of instinctively he understands how to do it and it's partly because he's just desperate to have this more wealthy life and break out of the fact that he doesn't have much money or friends and partly because he has just this really kind of malleable sense of identity as like a young man who in the film is queer and in the book I think it's more ambiguous um I haven't read the book but also, you know, one of the things we learn really early on is that he's fantastic at impressions and we see him sort of doing impressions of characters and it's one of the things he does to charm uh, Dickie Greenleaf and his girlfriend who's played by Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, so he starts off really early by admitting that like he's a liar and he's like, oh, your dad sent me to 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 pick you up. And it's like, that's just like a really great way to gain someone's confidence in the first act of the con trick. Like he really just understands how to manipulate people. <laughs> It's really, really well pulled off because you understand his desperation very innately because it's not like he's living in abject poverty or anything. He clearly doesn't really have money. And Dickie is so simultaneously charming and horrible. And his wealth... And life is so easy for him. his wealth is so seductive. He is living... In the Amalfi Coast. This movie was like our vacation from earlier in the year. It was like everywhere <laughs> I was that we it, went. I was like, I can't believe Morgan and I didn't watch this like together. No. Oh my god! <laughs> Literally, like the towns we went to. Not all of them, but like it was really remarkable. And that is like the most just uh, like gorgeous place in the world, right? And he's just lounging about in this house that he's just living in because who gives a shit? He has enough money Looking to do whatever. Looking beautiful, because he's Jude Law. I mean... And wearing all these <sighs> clothes. <laughs> the sheer just sex appeal is so off the charts. It is beyond belief. The casting in this is just absolute perfection. The situation they've got going... Because, like, Gwyneth Paltrow, they've got her, like... She's got her natural blonde eyebrows. She's wearing these 50s clothes, which are, like, the right kind of 50s clothes instead of being really pastiche Because she's just, like, a rich lady who's hanging out on the coast. But she's not super glamorous. She's just, like, chic and dressed down. And she wants to be a writer. And then Jude Law with his fucking, like, Prada slippers or whatever the hell it is. And his very blonde hair. His tan... Uh. It's Ugh. just really, it's a lot. But he's, that character is so interesting because 
He's very, very charming, clearly an asshole. He's sleeping around with all of these women, even though he's got this lovely girlfriend hanging around. But he's also quite perceptive in a way. He doesn't pick up on the fact that he's being conned immediately. So it's not like he's Sherlock Holmes or anything. But at various points in the movie, he'll say really cutting things about Tom Ripley that are absolutely correct. And they're really cruel, not the sort of thing you should ever say to a person, but he's totally right. So there's this sense of like, he's kind of dumb, but he's not completely an idiot. It's kind of like he has really good social skills, but has absolutely no interest in or need to use them to make friends or help people in any kind of altruistic way. So it's just kind of idling in the background, picking up little details that he can use later if he wants to yell at someone in a really hurtful way Mm mid-argument. But he's not kind of, he's not attempting to learn any useful information about anyone and he's just a horrible, immature bitch. Yes. And he'll kind of conform himself a bit to whoever he's with. So there's... Gwyneth Paltrow has a scene where she's explaining that basically like when he's paying attention to you, that everything seems amazing, which is a classic narcissist thing. And then he'll sort of get focused on somebody else. to the next person. And so he's always kind of horrible, but the, he has a friend played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's just like classic douchebag man. Amazing. Just an amazing performance. And when he comes around, then Dickie gets way worse because he's got this other guy there who he's kind of playing off of. And obviously we all do that to a certain degree, but with him it's pretty extreme. And so it's this, you get this sense of him being also a bit malleable, but in a way where he's sort of drawing other people to him in a different way because he's so unbelievably charismatic. And Tom is good at manipulating people too, but he's much more low-key. And it's just this really interesting kind of dynamic of these two people who are mirroring each other in a way, but are also completely, completely different. Yeah, I think it's one of Jude Law's best performances also. I mean, it was the thing that really broke him out too. And uh, he's just so good. He's so good in the movie. But they all are, as we were saying. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman is great. Gwyneth Paltrow, as you said, is a little bit underwritten, but she's really, really good in the role and it doesn't really matter. And then Kate Blanchett plays this other very rich young woman who's also touring around who kind of encounters these people. Really early Kate Blanchett. And I, I kind of want to read just an interview with Kate Blanchett talking about Patricia Highsmith because by coincidence or by design, she has been in the two great Highsmith like adaptations of our era, the other obviously being Carol. Yeah. And what's fun about this is that it's similar to some other big Blanchett roles in the sense that she's playing someone very extremely glamorous glamorous and regal in a way but she's also a kind of superficial in a way yes. that a lot of Kate Blanchett characters the famous ones we sort of associate her with are not really and she's not in control at all so we think of the sort of iconic Kate Blanchett characters as these sort of like grand dames or even in Blue um, Jasmine which she won her Oscar for where she's crazy she's still got this incredible energy and she's really in control of the movie and in this she's just this sort of like well she's so much younger yeah and also i know that her voice has just dropped so much but at first i i was like oh this woman looks really similar to kate blanchett <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> I mean, her is still pretty low. Um, but uh, yeah, but you know, yeah, she's not like you know a tenor, <laughs> which she is now. Yeah, it's just it's just a, it's really fun to see her doing something a bit different. I mean, about the superficiality thing, I re- something I really enjoyed about this role is, and it's quite a small role, right? But like between her and Gwyneth Paltrow, you have these two sort of society blondes who are in the same general social circle with these other male society blondes. And Gwyneth Paltrow is basically just really sympathetic. She's sort of a sweet person. I mean, she is naive, but she is actually the one who has the best instincts about Ripley because at first she, you know, she likes everyone, but she is the one who genuinely sort of starts to pick up on how bad he is, especially towards the end of the film, which is kind of her arc. Whereas with Kate Blanchett's character, she actually meets Tom Ripley earlier and is taken in by him. But we have this great sequence kind of in the second half of the film where they meet again. And they have this very comical conversation where she's just talking about how terrible and tragic it is to be a rich person. She's like, oh, you know, when you're rich, all you, you really just hate how much what wealth you have. So it means you can really only hang out with other people who are wealthy and hate it. And Tom Ripley, Ripley's kind of walking along beside her like, oh, yeah. <laughs> And of course, at that point, you were just like, God, this this woman just sucks. Like, I completely think it's fine for her to be conned out of her jewels or whatever by this guy. And then like a few scenes later, she's just like really emotionally sensitive and you really kind of feel for her. And it's like, this is like great writing and performance here for a really quite small role in the film. Yeah. Well, this is the thing about this movie, right? Is that Philip Seymour Hoffman does not have a huge part either. He's not in very many scenes because it's early in these people's careers. I mean, Kate Blanchett had already done Elizabeth by this point, so it's not like she was some nobody, but she wasn't the Kate Blanchett we know now, obviously, that they get these massive people, as we consider them now, in these pretty small roles. And so every single person is just this huge hitter. There's literally one actor in it who's not like mega, mega famous now, and that's Jack Davenport, who's also a very, very good actor. So like, it's fine. Yeah, he's like playing to type, yes. as everyone in this yes. movie, but like in a good way. Yeah, no, he's great. It's just that he's not, you know, Kate Blanchett. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they just have... We think of, I think people of our generation are like, oh, it's the gentleman from Pirates of the yep. Caribbean, <laughs> which is just an ignominious association, because of course he's a very good actor, but um, many good actors in Pirates of the Caribbean, actually. Yeah. Briefly. <laughs> <laughs> One, I mean, the sort of centrally most interesting thing about this movie, obviously, is that it has all of this queer subtext, or indeed text. I mean, it's not very subtle. Oh, it's, yeah, it's text. In fact, like, when we were watching, just to kind of touch upon a, a bit of a spoiler for the second half, when my friend and I were watching this together, um, after we finished the film, we actually had a, a disagreement over whether Ripley was actually dating Jack Davenport properly or not. Because I was like, I don't think they've kissed yet. And my friend was like, of course, they've been sleeping together for months. Gavia, they are clearly dating. I don't, what? No, no, I, I, I think they're dating. Of course they're dating. But I was like, I thought they were kind of at the early period of their courtship. No. And she was like, they've been fucking for ages. Yeah. It's just they can't show that in 1999 yeah. in a big movie. I think it's like my mind was like out of tune because... The film is otherwise, it's not shying away from that at all. It's just that obviously they don't show like men macking on each other. It's just like completely straightforward about kind of the queer content and kind of the tension between Ripley and Dickie Greenleaf and that kind of thing. Whereas there are just so many other films from like 1999 where it's just like, you know, a fiasco. (laughs) Well, it's just, I just think they handle it in an incredibly interesting way because obviously this guy is a huge creep and... Part of his creepiness is that he's really, really fixated on this man. 
And there's a mortifying scene early on where he thinks that Dickie is like delayed overnight or something and is like in his bedroom trying on his clothes and like doing a musical number in the window and then he walks in behind him and you're just like oh my god no 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 and so it's not like it's not mocking him at all like there definitely are moments where you're sort of meant to be like okay this is weird although also be embarrassed for him like in that scene you're definitely like oh you feel bad for him yeah so i mean this film did well it was sort of the the way that the characters sort of like acknowledge and don't acknowledge the idea of i guess like same-sex attraction or kind of queer sexuality because there's a lot of films that have this setting or you have like a character that is gay in 1950s america and obviously there are scenarios where it's like maybe you would like just everyone around you would just like not even consider the possibility of someone being gay but in this particular scenario I think Jude Law implicitly figures out pretty fucking early on that this guy is into him. It's quite clear. And it's like, he would understand that conceptually because he's like a horny 22-year-old who looks absolutely gorgeous and has been surrounded by college guys all the time. I mean, they're going to like jazz clubs. Like, of course he's going to like know a bunch of gay people and also sort of like be aware of when a guy is hitting on you. It's not like a romance, right? But it's, it's also not a situation where he is just like, oh, I don't know how to handle this because he is handling it in like a really obvious way. He is rebuffing these come-ons and he knows what the situation is. And it's like, yeah, that is the realistic response in this scenario rather than like an ahistorical view of what we think a 1950s man would be doing. Yes. And then the Gwyneth Paltrow character is quite sympathetic about it initially. I mean, she doesn't want him around, but she's not like, ugh, you know get this man out of my sight. She's kind of just like, yeah, I know. He can be very captivating and then, And the implication is there's literally been other men who've been hanging around her boyfriend because, like, he's this golden god and she's just tolerated it. She's like, look, (laughs) I get it. (laughs) But kind of the most interesting thing to me, actually, was when I... I think I literally just, like, went on the Wikipedia page for Tom Ridley because he's, like, a very famous character from sort of 20th century culture. There were a lot of film adaptations and there were several books. And I have not read the book, so I cannot comment with great specificity on the changes but I was reading up on this a little bit and so as you mentioned at the beginning I think Patricia Hyde-Smith there's definitely a lot of stuff in the books where there's sort of subtextual stuff going on but he winds up marrying a woman and she said like well I don't really think he's gay he just sort of is flirting around whatever and the way he was described in what I was reading made him sound a lot like Hannibal Lecter so he winds up like moving to France and living this life as like an esthete. Like he's eating all this fancy cuisine and listening to the opera and all of this whatever and carrying off these and absurd crimes, right? And th- he's like very, very um, socially skilled in a way that, at least based on this superficial reading, seemed very different to me from the character in this movie, who again is good at manipulating people. But it's just weird. But also, this is like the early era. And I'm interested to see what they do with the next Ripley adaptation. Because yeah. the next one is the one that's starring Andrew Scott. He is in his 40s. They cannot possibly be doing this story. So it must be like older Ripley. Yeah, I also though, I mean, we won't talk too much about the end. But I'm not convinced that this is designed to make you think he's just going to be carrying on for a great deal longer. No. No, this is definitely a standalone story. I mean, obviously they didn't make any more. But like... I yeah. view this definitely as sort of the whole thing. Like, he's done after yes. this movie, yes. right? And um, so 
I was really intrigued by the fact that he was just so kind of, he's just an unnerving, strange person. The performance is a lot of that. The, the writing contributes to it too. He's just, there's just something about his manner that's very off. They do such a good job, I think. Well, the stuff they did with the mimicry. Yes, is a lot of that. He's very, very good at that. I mean, I think they do something with the with the audio to to emphasize that. But um, it just makes him seem very uncanny. And so you get a sense, again, less of the, like, demonization of his sexuality. And, like, the Jack Davenport character who plays the guy he's dating at the end it comes across just really as, like, a, just a perfectly nice man who is in a bad situation, right? And it's just that this one individual person is a fucking weirdo. And obviously he's in the situation where he has been living this strange life because he can't express certain parts of himself or whatever, but so did plenty of people and they didn't murder people. So yeah, a lot of the time he will see a problem and be like, I feel like the most efficient solution here would be homicide. Right. Which is not And normal. it's like they have this kind of fantastic combination of, first of all, just a very murdery person. Very, very, finds it quite easy to murder, but isn't completely cold about it. He's really upset when he kills some of these people. And there's also this kind of lack of balance between the fact that in many ways he is already this very accomplished, charming con artist in the way that you sort of expect from this type of media. And when you're watching this type of story, it's really satisfying to see someone succeed with that because that's the emotional purpose of these movies. You know, it's like, it's cool to watch someone like pull an Ocean's Eleven. But we're not used to seeing them be really emotionally volatile and vulnerable, which is what is happening here. And he goes through just like these peaks and troughs all the way through the movie, emotionally and in terms of the way he's strategizing. And it just it's just so unique. Yeah. And I think the movie, part of what's so smart about the movie is that it is incredibly glamorous. All the locations, again, are just so pleasurable to watch as someone who is, like, in America, right, and doesn't get to hang out in Italy all the time. The costumes are so... This was a Christmas movie, which is genius. Yeah, the costumes are so beautiful. The music is great. You're watching these beautiful people. There's, it's very plot-driven, right? Like, there's a lot happening. It's fun to watch. But when you get... It's really long. The, it's long, but it doesn't feel yeah, long, right? Yeah, It's just, like, an unusual plot structure, and it's over two yeah. hours. But the actual, like, murder stuff is quite gruesome. It's bad. Yeah. And so they're not giving you that sense of like, ooh, a sexy, fun murder. You're just like, oh, God, this is... It's really upsetting murder. And it's like during one of the murder scenes, I was just like, Patricia Highsmith is definitely someone who is, you know, she's done some research on what happens with a head wound. (laughs) You know, (laughs) here is a morbid lady. Yeah. Um, So like her common, like her things are, I mean, as listeners probably know, her things are, you know, she does a lot of sort of, erotic often homoerotically tinged thrillers with some murders strangers on a train being a very famous one carol was her side gig because she couldn't publish that under her real name because it was the 50s but um she she definitely was morbid and i really respect that yes i i can't recall now there are definitely some they published her diaries very recently or they announced they're going to publish them there was something in the news about her diaries and i feel like there were definitely some some entries where she's just talking about like murder in a way that's like, yes, you were writing about that a great deal. Not like <laughs> contemplating murder, but you know, if yeah, you're a yeah. novelist of this type, you got to research that stuff a lot. And, you know. Love her. Love great. her. Yeah. I just think that this is a great film. 
I do think that this kind of thing, it's, it's satisfying to me that it seems to be so well regarded now. Obviously there've been lots of sort of 1999 in review stuff going on in this year. Cause that was such a huge year for um, movies and especially big studio movies, which people like to talk about. And a lot of the big pieces have just been about like the matrix and fight club, which were obviously great, but I have definitely seen stuff about this film too. And I think it's Im- the re- its reputation is improved over time and um and it's full of famous people which helps yeah. like it's not one of these things where it's like where are they now it's like we know where they are and it's kind of interesting that's where they ended up yes <laughs> but it's just really satisfying to have something like this around it's timeless it is timeless it really is there is no element of it where you're like oh politically this feels really dated which often happens especially with I guess, like, dramas to do with sex, especially historical, mm-hmm. like, sex dramas. Or it, you can't tell... I mean, you can tell it's the 90s from the cast, but it doesn't look like no. that, which period pieces I mean, Kate Blanchett do. in 1950 could be Kate Blanchett in 1950 in one of her many other yes. roles where she has the same haircuts. Yeah, I just think that we undervalue this kind of thing and that people should make more of them. That's my request to Hollywood, because uh, this movie is super, super smart and also a really fun time and looks great as we've said i think before we sign off i just have to shout out the costume designer from this movie i don't feel like the costumes in this film need explaining like if you've seen it you could very clearly see sort of like the way you're seeing stuff to do with like the economics of the contrast between the characters and kind of glamour and all that stuff however it's very important for you all to know that anne roth born 1931 was the costume designer for this she I believe has retired now, but her last film came out in last year. It came out in 2018. So here are some films that she, uh, she recently, she costumed Mamma Mia. In the past, she costumed Midnight Cowboy, 1969. That was, she's done many other films. The Birdcage, Cold Mountain, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Nine to Five. She's done a lot of camp classics. She's done a lot of historical dramas. I don't think she's done any sci-fis, but she is like an icon of costume design. So thank you, Anne Roth. Yeah, that's really remarkable. Some of those women just go on and on and on and on and on for decades. And you just think, how? How have you done this? Really awe-inspiring. I mean, literally her first movie was 1964 and her last one was 2018. Jesus Christ. I mean, we should all be so lucky. Truly. Actually, I tell a lie. She actually has two more films coming up, so she's not retired. (laughs) She's actually costuming the Wicked adaptation. Oh, perfect. You'd love to see it. Yeah, and she's doing her first sci-fi, so that's a nice nice thing for her. She's 88 years old, and when she turns 90, her first sci-fi film will come (laughs) out, so... (laughs) Well, on that truly inspiring note... Icon. Yeah, I think that's all we have to say about the talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, obviously, we highly recommend this. I think it's streaming on Hulu in the US, if any of you have that. But yeah, you can watch it many places. Great, great, fun, morbid Christmas Delicious. Watch. Delicious so, film. Yeah. <laughs> Next week, we will be discussing a small indie drama called Welcome to the Dollhouse, directed by Todd Salons, which is a uh, teen movie that... Uh, a very generous patron uh, sponsored us to watch. So we're going to get in a very small film before we do the big bonanza of Star Wars. Yeah, the week after. Star Wars. We're going to do Little Women at some point. We are going to do 
a special Patreon-only minisode, or actually probably quite long yes. minisode. We're going to do a Patreon-only episode on Die Hard, which Morgan will be seeing for the first time. I don't need to rewatch it because I've seen Die Hard like five times. But um, if you're a Patreon person, look forward to that. Yes, that will be our Christmas episode this year. Merry Christmas to you all in advance. I'll watch Die Hard Indeed. for the first time. <laughs> so um, lots of good stuff coming up. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode as always. If you would like to read my Angry Little Women content in advance of the film and or get ready for our Die Hard episode, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing at The Daily Dot and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.